0: Exodus chapter 4. We are going through a series in Exodus, the story of redemption as told in Exodus. Exodus is one of the most fantastic narratives of the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's one of the best narratives to give you something of, a, of, of just a sweeping picture of what it looks like to know and understand the gospel as it is as a story of redemption and um, through the exodus of God's people uh, in that day and time um, away from slavery from the Egyptians and uh, into a new life um, that they give an amazing picture and narrative form of the person and work of Jesus actually this is just so many years before Jesus is even Uh, On the scene, but yet the Exodus speaks in volumes narratively um, what the meaning of the cross and the actions of Christ on our behalf um, were um, uh, by way of the Exodus. Um, So with that said, um, I'm going to go ahead and start actually in chapter 3. Greg mentioned last week I was going to take the baton from him. I'm literally going to take the baton from him by going into what he read uh, as a starter and to transition us into chapter 4. So I'm starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, um, it's... uh, Uh, God speaking to Moses saying, go and gather the elders of Israel, basically the leaders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. In other words, I, I know you, I see you and what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pez- uh, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the Bible's way of just saying it is a stocked land. Uh, it is beautiful. It is greatly to be desired. And they will, um, and they will listen. Meaning the people, when you tell them this message, they will listen to your voice you and the elders of Israel shall then go to the king of Egypt. And he goes on to explain, you're going to say the exact same things to the king of Egypt. Um, Now, what he has just done here, and it may not be easy to recognize, especially if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or if you're unfamiliar with reading the Old Testament in light of, Um, of what Christ has done. But what he is doing here, and Galatians uh, in the latter portion of the Bible actually tells us this, is that he is proclaiming the gospel. And he's telling them to tell the gospel, the good news to the people. Now, this may not sound like the traditional gospel or good news that that you've heard about previously, the good news about what Jesus has done, but in Galatians, the seed of what Jesus would do is actually said to be the promise that God made to Abraham. And so all he's doing here is he's saying that promise that God made to Abraham, that he would give them a land, that he would give them a place. He would be their God, they would be his people, uh, and that eventually out of his becoming a great nation, a people, that there would be the Redeemer. In other words, there will be a way in which the whole earth, all people will be blessed, not just a particular, just not a single people, but all people will be able to hear and receive this good news of the gospel. It doesn't mean all will receive it, but it just means that it's going to be open to all types of people everywhere. And so he is effectively telling them, retelling them this gospel message, this good news that God has plans of deliverance for them, deliverance from their enslavement. Now, in their minds, the enslavement to the Egyptians is primary. And that's the way we think oftentimes, but that's not the greatest enslavement they had. The enslavement they had that they were truly to be delivered from in the gospel was their enslavement uh, to sin, idolatry, uh, and to all the suffering and uh, pain um, it causes. And so this is the gospel he's preaching to them. So having said that, And keeping that in your mind, let's go to chapter 4. It starts out in chapter 4 saying this. Moses, he just heard God tell him, give him a message that he's going to preach to the people. And Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So he's already throwing up roadblocks. He's saying, I get it. This is the message you want me to say. Here's the problem. They won't believe me. In fact, they'll say that I haven't really talked to you. All right. Then he goes on. Uh, The Lord says, okay, I hear that. But here's the thing. I'm going to send some signs with you. Uh, One of the signs was he was going to take Moses' staff. And he said, hey, throw that down. He throws it down. It turns into a serpent. He goes, isn't that interesting? <laughs> See what I just did there? And he says, I'm going to do that as a sign. And then he says, why don't you put your hand in your cloak? Now pull it out. And he pulled it out. It was white with leprosy. And he says, put it back in. Pull it back out. And all of a sudden it was clean again. It was, it was normal. And he basically goes through the various signs. And all the signs have a purpose of, of really proclaiming um, the nature of God's redemptive work in the gospel. Um, one being that he's gonna turn over the way creation has been remade in man's image, how it has been affected by sin. He's basically saying, I can manipulate things in nature Uh, and make what seems impossible possible. And so they're going to see that when they see a staff thrown out turned to a serpent. And then when they see a hand that was once with leprosy and disease all of a sudden clean, he's like, like there's nothing that cannot be cleansed uh, by what I am going to do um, in the gospel. Um, So anyway, all the signs have a purpose. They're not just magic parlor tricks to show that, hey, I can be believed because I can do cool things. Um, they all actually had a purpose to them as well. Um, and then in verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, um, Lord, I am not eloquent, uh, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. <laughs> okay, so, so he's like, okay, you've given me the message, you've given me signs uh, to, to reinforce it uh, for their, the sake of belief, uh, but I'm not a good speaker. And so he's throwing up another roadblock, right? Uh, I'm not a good speaker. Uh, then the Lord said to them, hey, who has made man's mouth? Who has made man's mouth? Uh, it's a rhetorical question. He's, he's saying that, hey, look, you, you, you are n- might, may not be eloquent in speech, but I can do a lot with people who are not eloquent. Uh, because I can make staffs turn to stakes. I can make leprosy turn to cleanliness. He's he's like, your mouth's not going to be a problem for me. You can throw up that roadblock, but but Moses insists. uh, Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, I will be with your mouth and teach what you shall speak. But Moses, throwing up his, his objection, says, "Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. and you shall be as God to him. Not literally, but he will convey the words of God as God conveys them to Moses. And so now we're playing the game of telephone a little bit, right? Um, so that's, that's what's happening. That's what he means by that. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so he does that. And he starts heading away from Midian, uh, which is where he was living, towards Egypt to reunite with his people Um, and more specifically with his brother Aaron so that they can together go to their people and tell this message, uh, this good news uh, to the people about God's deliverance for them. Um, That's where we pick up in verse 27 of chapter four. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses So he went out into the wilderness, met with him at the mountain of God and kissed him. It's the way they greeted. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders, the leaders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. They believed the good news. They believed the message of deliverance uh, from God through Moses and through Aaron. And when they heard it, that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, in other words, that he had been present with them during their suffering, during their pain, during that affliction, and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, if the text ended there, that would be fantastic. Great story, but that's not where it ends. In fact, the story is so utterly human. I mean, like, like if you're looking to create a case for an airtight, an airtight religion, you don't start inserting chapter 5 and beyond. You just don't. The Bible is incredibly transparent and just honest about how I am, how you are, just how people are. And so afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to the Pharaoh, who was the great power of the day, Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord of the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Who is he? I don't know who this is. Your God? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. This is Aaron and Moses talking. They said, hey, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword, lest there be consequences for us. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Uh, In other words, why why are you distracting them from what they should be doing? Get back to your burdens. Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. So that same day, Pharaoh commanded the the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. The foremen were Israelites themselves, uh, basically leaders uh, set up by the Egyptians amongst the people um, who were enslaved Um, He said, go to the people and their foremen and say this, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. What's the significance of this? Well, it made the making of bricks even possible. And the way that they worked the manufacturing of the bricks and how they helped them make it at a significant pace is they would provide for them their supplies. A part of those supplies was the straw that they would use in making the brick. And so what he is saying is this straw that we have supplied, you should no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. This is Pharaoh's way of saying this good news that's been told to them is a lie. It's a lie and it should not be believed and they're distracted from their work and so I will make their work more difficult and keep their mind off of this supposed good news. And so with that, the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw for you and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But the Pharaoh said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say to us, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. You're basically lazy. That's why you want to go into the wilderness. You want to get away from your work. So go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the eye or in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to the people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, He will send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. He's talking about some things that are going to be happening over the next few chapters that are going to be happening uh, down the line a few weeks from now as we read. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham. That's, That's his ancestor, remember? The first one who heard that gospel preached to them. I appeared to Abraham, then to Isaac, who's his son, and to Jacob, who's his son, and I appeared to them as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He's now made himself known in that way, specifically to Moses and his generation. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived previously as sojourners or travelers. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I remembered my covenant, my agreement, and I I say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment." upon Egypt, that is, and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, uh, but they did not Listen. That's, that's the Bible's way of saying they didn't believe him um, because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. And so the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am, an un, for I am of uncircumcised lips." But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel, about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. A lot going on there, right? Um, We're not going to be able to cover all of it, but I do want to speak to the larger sweeping narrative that's happening here and what it has to say to not just us today, to the people who are living it in that day and age, and really a sweeping narrative that is directly connected to the gospel about what Jesus did on the cross and what it means for all people in all times. I do wanna just back up real quickly to verse nine, more towards the end of verse nine of chapter six. Because it really does help set up what we're after today, um, and maybe will help you help you possibly get in uh, to the experience of the people during that time, and connect it to your own experience in the world and life today. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I want to I want to talk a little bit about what that means, and not because that doesn't speak very clearly. It does speak clearly. I think we have an understanding as far as how dark that is to have a broken spirit and to be under a harsh slavery of some sort, uh, that that's not to be desired and it is to be pitied and incredibly, incredibly, deeply dark. Um, But but I also want you to understand a little bit, if you kind of break down the, the Hebrew term, Uh, that that is translated broken spirit. It actually has a a, a few layers to it. Um, If we were to speak of it in today's words, we would say they were physically, emotionally, and mentally fatigued, tired, exhausted. Um, Some of you have felt an absolute bottomed out exhaustion over the last year at different times. Some of you feel it right now. Some of you had a good last year, but you know what this is speaking to because you felt it in your life. Um, But it wasn't just about fatigue and tiredness. It's an end of the rope sense. An end of the rope that also means we've reached the end of our patience as well. Not just fatigue and exhaustion, I can't deal with this on a mental and physical level, but also because of all those things, the meaning of the term means a broken spirit is in, I can't wait any longer. I don't have patience for this message that you're bringing to us, Moses. This is their way after at first having believed the gospel and as a result, worship the Lord because it was such good news to them. This is them saying, "Eh, no matter how good that news is, it doesn't seem to be helping me out in my life situation right now you ever thought that maybe you even said that out loud and so they're saying I don't have patience to wait for the kind of deliverance that the gospel has for me I need something more immediate I need something that'll happen for me today <coughs> excuse me because my deeds are gonna come square to my face tomorrow when I can't meet my quota of bricks. And so they lost their patience and there was no hope that the new normal was going to let up. How did they get to this point? How does any of us get to this point? How do we get to this point? It's as if sometimes it's just too hard to cling to our faith because we're in a situation that requires such absolute massive amounts of actual demonstration of faith. It's kind of ironic, right? We're people of faith and oftentimes we can't cling to our faith because it requires so much faith. But that is the nature of having a faith is that it implies there will be a necessity to demonstrate faith. That there will be circumstances, there will be life situations where faith will have to be acted out. Where it has to be real. It has to be real. Sounds absurd when I say it like that, that I can't cling to my faith because it takes faith. Um, But that is exactly the point. It is absurd that I am faithless when I know in my heart that God is actually truly, ultimately, always faithful. It is absurd. If that is truly my faith, I am truly living outside of my faith. I am walking out of step with my faith when I say it's too much to actually demonstrate faith in my faith. Um, But back to the question, how do we even get to this point? How do we get to this point? What is it that happens that moves a person from a point of trusting the gospel and worshiping God? And there's no reason given to us in the text to believe it was insincere um, what takes us from that point to a point of forgetting or neglecting the gospel and valuing the things of creation over and above the creator or maybe valuing the crisis of the moment the catastrophe of the moment over the good news that supposedly overrides all crises and catastrophes what is it well from today's text Um, we do get something of a breakdown as to the anatomy of how this happens for us. The greatest enemies of of me believing the gospel, of you believing the gospel, of any of us uh, believing the gospel, specifically that God is a deliverer that delivers us from our slavery, our greatest slavery, and that is to sin and to death. Um, The greatest enemies of that are idols that are without and idols that are from within, um, idols that are outside of us, idols that are also on the inside of us, in the inner self. Um, and so I want to break those two things down, the idols from without. Um, look at in chapter 5, verse 15, um, we see a good example of this, um, where the foreman of the people of Israel... Um, after receiving this terrible news that they're not hitting their quota, but the quota is still there and it's still expected of them, they go and the people of Israel came and they cried to who? They cried to Pharaoh. They cried to Pharaoh. It's interesting. In the moment of their greatest despair, the one who told them the good news and whom they worshiped and believed sincerely was not the one at their low they cried out to. They cried out to Pharaoh instead. They cried out and their heart betrayed them in who they cried out to, who they really believed had power, who they really believed could offer them benevolence, kindness, mercy. It's interesting. Um, This isn't just something they did. This is something people do. We do this all the time. We ascribe and assign power and benevolence and kindness and mercy. Oftentimes in the strangest of places. We see maybe the approval of someone very important in our life As the greatest power over us. And when we don't get it, we're devastated. We're just absolutely slayed. I mean, if we think about that in terms of what God is saying here, that the gospel is, when we allow ourselves to ascribe such great power and allow people to have that power over us and to hold benevolence over us, the Bible is calling that slavery. (laughs) It's calling that slavery. He says, I came to deliver you that I am more powerful and more benevolent than your wildest dreams. But yet you go to Pharaoh. And it doesn't have to be Pharaoh. It goes by many names. Whatever outside of us we ascribe the greatest power and benevolence and possible kindness and mercy to is the thing we believe has the most worthiness of our worship and so while they worshipped the Lord again we have no reason to believe wasn't sincere in the moment they vacillated and moved quickly to worshiping Pharaoh in the next he was an idol from without but it wasn't just Pharaoh if you look in verse 20 this is when the people spoke to Moses and Aaron they said the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, this sounds pretty impressive on the surface. They are invoking the name of the Lord in calling out Moses and Aaron. They're saying, basically, this can't be the Lord's plan. This can't be the Lord's plan. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the boldness to call out Moses and Aaron and invoke the name of the Lord as judging them for what they have done and the position they put them in. In other words, they're saying, Moses, Aaron, you're mistaken. This is not the way this story is supposed to go. In other words, their circumstances was not fitting the story as they would write it. And they wanted to make sure that Moses and Aaron knew that they think that God is on the side of our story and the way it should be written. And so we see in the combination of their life circumstances, they hold an idolatry of their own story being the true story that should be told in their history. Their circumstances, their story combined to be both an idol from without in combination with an idol from within. Surely this is not the way things should write. How often have you done this where you're like, this isn't the way things should go? But yet, as we learned two weeks ago, through the faith of Jacob, their ancestor, from 400 years prior, that what others mean for evil, what seems bad, God in a cosmic miracle actually means for good and actually ends up good in the larger meta-narrative of God's story. But see, it's impossible to believe that truly if we live our lives primarily out of our own narrative all the time. The Bible, which is many things, but it is one thing it for sure is it's a redemptive history. It's a history of what God is doing in redemption in the gospel from the front to the back. And it bids us to sub... Uh, sub our story and our life under its story. In other words, whatever my story is, however long I live, however many years I have left, are all meant to be lived under and grafted into the much larger story of God. That God's story is primary and it's the better story. And it's the story that is so much better than any story I could write or I could imagine. But it's also not going to always turn out the way I think it should. That's the nature of living under the Lord's story as opposed to my own and submitting my own narrative to his narrative. And so they're having trouble believing the gospel and becoming worshipers of God because their story is primary right now. Whenever our stories are primary, it's going to be really hard to really believe the gospel as good news. It's always going to seem like bad news to us. It's going to be really hard to believe and worship God as truly the benevolent, great, and powerful God when we believe that the story is being written wrong. So those are idols without, but there's also idols within. It says in chapter 6, verse Nine, that passage we started off with today, did not li- they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. The broken spirit and harsh sl- slavery. The broken spirit, the end of themselves, the end of their rope, the exhaustion, all came about because there were so many unmet expectations. They... Imagine their fears to be alleviated. They imagined their doubts to be squashed. They wanted, they wanted deliverance to look like comfort. They wanted their victimhood at the hands of Pharaoh to be their identity now. They wanted their brokenness to somehow be the cause for them to get away with all kinds of things. Now, that's not all said here, but it happens as we begin to unpack not just the Exodus, but the story of God's people in the Old Testament. All of this stuff will come out, but it really amounts to this. It's what we call inner idols. It's when we allow our fears, our doubts, our desires to rule us. And that when they are not fed, and when they are not, when they're not given the proper respect, well, we act out. (laughs) And we choose, well, if that's the gospel, I don't think that's very good news. Now, if it's indulging me and giving me what I want, that's good news. And this is kind of where they are at this moment. They're like, hey, you're not alleviating our fears. You're not giving us comfort. Whatever deliverance looks like to you, it looks different to us. And it hasn't happened. And so we have a broken spirit over that. What we see here is something that um, a Christian leader in the first century named Paul, uh, he's also known as the Apostle Paul, what he speaks of when he said, you know, there's a manner of life, a way of thinking, a way of acting, a way of living, there's a manner of life that's associated with you prior to believing the gospel. And you're going to always fight that. You're going to always fight that battle with that way of thinking. And you're always going to have to put that old way of thinking, that old manner of life away. You're always going to have to fight it and try to put it off. In Ephesians 4, through 23 says it like this, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. I know you think it's good desires, but it's not good desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to be put, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. He's saying when we're renewed in the gospel, we start to look like our heavenly father again in ways that we've never even imagined. We start to look like him again. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and true holiness. Whatever we think righteousness, goodness, holiness, whatever we think that looks like, he says, you've not seen anything until you're actually remade in the likeness of God. This is what happens for those who trust Christ, though. Sometimes, though, and by the way, it wouldn't say put off the old self if that were not possible. In other words, it's possible and probable that we'll always go back to the well of our old manner of life. Sometimes we revert back to this manner of life that is effectively our attempt at handling things our own way, on our own, survival in the midst of our pain, survival, in the midst of our sufferings. But it's a manner of life that's built around surviving apart from God and the redemption he offers. It's a manner of life that's really just the summary of our best tactics we have as human beings. Minus the power of God and the redemption he offers. Tactics like self-protection. Have you ever done this? When you're suffering, when you're hurt, you self-protect, you push other people away. Or maybe this, knowing that your approval needs and the others approving of you is so high, you gauge life, you even gauge your friends based upon their actions and whether they are feeding your approval meter and you let them go as they seem to be depleting and not filling your approval meter people literally do this on social media by the way I have not received a like from them in years I'm unfollowing them I am trimming my friend list anyone ever seen that how many of you have posted it I'm gonna post this and if you comment then I guess we're really friends and I will keep you as a friend everyone else I'll trim off my list Have you ever seen that on a social media post before? I mean, that's all we're doing. We're like going, I need approval. You're not giving me approval. You're not paying attention enough to me. So I'm voting you down. You're going off my list. In Christ, in the gospel, you are approved of by God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You don't ever have to earn God's approval again. When you trust Christ, he is pleased with you because he is pleased with his son who died in your place and in my place. Never have to reach for his approval again. I am approved of because of my Savior Jesus. I don't have to engage in tactics of this world, the best tactics this wife has to offer. I don't have to lean into numbing substances and pleasures. I don't need to, for the sake of drama or the sake to accentuate the seriousness or to gain attention, cast, cat, catastrophize the events of my life in an attempt to make sense of my hurt and pain. I don't need to do any of that. I don't need to minimize it either. I don't need to marginalize my hurt and my pain this manner of life, these measures, here's the dirty little secret about them. They actually work a lot of times. A lot of the tactics of this world, they work. What the people of Egypt are doing isn't completely mindless and with no sense. You're like, why are they believing the gospel and not believing the gospel? Because, friends, in the gospel, we are going to have to be patient on aspects of God's deliverance in our lives. The Bible labors itself to communicate that point. It never promises always an immediate deliverance all the time. Do you know how long has passed prior to the Exodus since God promised He would bring His people into the land He promised them? Do you know how much time has passed since the promise and then? Over 400 years. I get impatient if God doesn't deliver me from something that I prayed about a month ago. Patience in God's economy is completely different than the patience in the modern economy. And this is why the Apostle Paul encouraged us to believe the gospel again, to put on the new self and to put off that old self and its banner of life that, yes, sometimes gets us immediate results, but ultimately will not fulfill in any way. It can't fulfill the promises it makes. I want to close this way. How did the Lord ask Moses to go back to the people and respond to their disbelief after their belief? <laughs> What did he send them back with? Okay, the gospel didn't work. So let's tell them a few more things. Oh, let's do some miracles. That always works. Do you know what he sent them back with? The gospel, again. Again. I mean, it says it right there in six. He says, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. And he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will, he says, tell them again what you've already told them. Remind them of the good news again. Um, this is an old statement because I say it a lot. For those of you who are new, just know this. We don't have a lot of messages in our church. Um, we have one or one trick pony, church, we have the gospel, and that's it. It is the message of the Bible. It's the message of what Christ did, and it is the message of the church. Anyone tries to peddle for you multiple additional messages that do not emanate from or work themselves out from that are just not representing either the Christianity, Christ, or his scriptures very well. We have one message and it is the gospel. And this is why he takes them back to it. And so with that said, I just want to offer a few challenges to you today as we leave here. First is this. Would you consider that maybe today you might need to repent of accusations and anger you've had towards God? I'm not saying you can't have anger and accusations. The Psalms actually give us great freedom to say some pretty things Rough things to God, but they always resolve. The psalmists always come back to worship and come back to truth and what they know is true despite their anger. And so, what I'm asking some of you to do is you've been honest with God, maybe you've even heaped accusations and you've been very angry with them and been forthright, but it's time to see the resolve. It's time to see that resolve. It's time to repent and to believe and return to believing in God's character as the true redeemer, that there are no redeemers out there that replace him, that he is the deliverer he says he is. And as if he's laboring the point that he is a very good deliverer, he tells us in this, he says, I've seen you. I know what's been going on. I've heard your groaning. This is his way of reminding them that his character is the true redeemer. Is impressive and should draw you to want to worship him. Because when he says he knows, he's not just saying, I'm aware. He's saying, I know the deepest sense of awareness regarding you, your inner self, your hurts, your pains, your sufferings. I know those. I know those better than you. The ones that you can't make sense of, that you feel are twisted up in you and that you can't get meaning out of, I know it. I can parse it. I can break it down. I know exactly what it all is. I know you. I know you. It also is a simple acknowledgement that he sees you. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your suffering. God doesn't expect us to ignore or minimize our pain, but the call to believe the gospel is a call to face your pain with the Lord, that he's the kind of God who walks with you through your pain and suffering, and that there's actually fruit, good stuff from the gospel in that. It's also his way of saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm present here with you. He's there. And finally, to say he knows is to remind us that his promise stands. He knows we're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled of deliverance. And he's saying, I know, and it's going to be fulfilled. My promise stands. I am a deliverer that intervenes on the behalf of people. And he did. Do you want to know what his greatest intervention was? It was in the sending of his son, the son of God, Jesus and what Jesus accomplished in the cross and his resurrection on our behalf. Here's a second thing to consider Do you need to repent of living today primarily out of your own story? Meaning your story is kind of the lead story, and all other stories are to be subservient to yours. Again, the goodness of the gospel is, is to remind us how's that working out for you living out of your own story? Because chances are it's probably not consistently great. And he says, Good news. You can repent. You can turn away from that, out of your own story, and return to trusting in God's redemptive story. It's a better story. And it's a story that grafts your story into its own. It doesn't mean your story becomes nothing. It just means now your story has a meaning to it that it didn't previously had without you just assigning it arbitrarily. He says, you have meaning. And so, return to trusting God's redemptive story that He's using all things to deliver us from sin slavery. And also remember that God remembers. He remembers. He's on top of His story. He's not forgetting His story. He's not missing beats in His story. He's always acting. And because, if anything, 400 years between the promise. And the actual promise delivered should tell us something. Most of the ways he acts in our lives are going to be mundane to us. They're not going to feel like these great dramatic beats in his larger story. But every once in a while, there are very dramatic beats in that story. And his providence will act in unique ways like he did at the Exodus. Maybe you will in our generation, I don't know. We'll see. I pray for it because I think I'd love to be a part of something like that, something really interesting and unique, a renewal, a revival, an awakening of some sort spiritually. I would love to be a part of something like that. And so I would never discourage you to pray for it. But I do know this. I don't think God owes that to me in my lifetime. I don't think he owes that to me. I would love to see it, but it's his story and he's writing it and he's good. The final thing maybe to consider today is this. Do you need to repent of worshiping your vision for deliverance? Maybe you had a vision for deliverance and had to do with comfort. It had to do with you coming out on top in some way. Maybe it had to do with the crushing of people in your life who are on your list of people to crush. People have that. Repent of worshiping your vision for deliverance and return your worship to the God of deliverance. <laughs> Sometimes I think we, we think we're worshiping God when we're actually worshiping our vision of God and our vision of God's deliverance. <laughs> and it's one of our own making. The Bible has a word for that. It's called crafting an idol for yourself. <laughs> and we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to take God at his word and for the revealing of who he is. I want to finish with a passage that I think speaks to this section of Exodus more than any from Jesus's mouth. It's in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. The favors of your life just want you to get back to your burdens. They just want you to get back to your burdens. Jesus said, The gospel isn't about pushing you back to your burdens. Gospel is about me giving you rest from those burdens. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, back in the truck up just a few more steps. Maybe you just need to begin before even repenting, just calling out to the Lord. Just calling out to the Lord. The people of Israel, in their lack of faith, called to Pharaoh. If you noticed, Moses, even though he was a little bit complainy, he at least called out to the Lord in his complaint, not to Pharaoh. And so even if you're not in a good spot today, like Moses was, not in a good spot when the people rejected him. I can tell you this, it's at least one good step, one good move to just cry out to the Lord and just say, why, oh Lord? Why, oh Lord? And maybe that is your prayer today. However you respond, I just ask you to consider being sensitive to maybe some of the things I've said, but also to what the Spirit might be doing in you that has nothing to do with what I said. To that end, let's pray.